for 15 years, twice a month. I've met with the same five men for the sole purpose of talking about the things we encounter as men in the world. It's uh, six dudes hanging out together, talking about life. We talk about our jobs, our marriages, our divorces, our kids, anything that comes to mind. And after some coaxing, well, I'll be honest, after a lot of coaxing, I convinced them to let me record one of our meetings. Do all men think alike? Do all men act alike? And what is it we need to do to become better partners? These are some of the questions we talked about that evening. I also talk with evolutionary biologist Mark Beckhoff about the importance of studying animal behavior to understand human behavior. My name is Andy Horning, and this is Elephant Talk. It's a show about all things relationship, the soulful, the silly, and the sexy. Men traditionally have been stonewallers, and one thing that they need to do is to be open to being influenced by their wives. Men are not open to being influenced by their wives. Do you have any take on that? And more specifically, how have you been influenced? How have you changed? I was living out this belief that life was hard and that my disappointments or my frustrations and all these um, things, I was, I was really up against it in terms of financial challenges and, and making my way in the world. And she challenged me around that. It took a lot of persistence and um, guts on her part to assert that and say, look, it's a choice. Happiness really is a choice, and you're choosing to be unhappy. Were you open to it at no. first? She gave me a challenge. She said, "Be choose to be happy for a week. I said, okay. That week fell into a second week, a third week, fourth week. Next thing I know, I finally realized it really is a choice. She got me to see that I was really choosing that. And that's an age-old pattern I've had since, you know, probably before I can remember. For me, Jenny has shown me that... I can be intimidating. I can be a little mean. I can say things that are unkind. And she continues to remind me over and over again that that's a part of me, that it's not her that's doing that, and that it hurts when she's the receiver of that kind of energy. I know myself I have a resistance to being changed. If I think someone is trying to change me, you know, make me be something that I am not or, or doesn't feel authentic to me. What do you do? That really pisses me off. And <laughs> I resist. My wife would make comments about uh, my, my shoes, my jeans, my, like, whatever I was wearing. And I thought, that's so shallow. You know, she's trying to make me into somebody I'm not. And it wasn't until we had a knockdown, drag out fight, you know, around it. And at some point, she explained to me that she has a, uh, a sense that people can dress their souls hmm. and, and literally use clothing to be expressive of, of who you are inside. It was a completely new paradigm for me. Her sense was that I was dishonoring that hmm. through the way I was dressing and that I could dress differently and actually honor something about myself. Will you explain what you were wearing? Oh, like baggy kind of stuff and 
uh, untailored shirts and jeans that uh, she called them turd catchers. <laughs> <laughs> turd catchers? Yeah, they're kind of baggy in the butt, you know, and <laughs> like old Levi's and. She certainly pushes me in ways to grow and change. There's no question about that. And challenges me in various aspects of how my character shows up. My relationship history prior was what I would call pretty chaotic. She's very grounded, has tremendous integrity, very in touch with emotions. And that was helpful to me as well in terms of I'm very good at talking and explaining things and how I feel, but to actually be uh, encouraged and supported in expressing emotion was, was very helpful. She just really is an example to me of someone who I just respect and admire. Sometimes outside of this group, I feel isolated a little bit in terms of uh, what other men are out there trying to embody the masculinity of being a man while also holding on to the the feminine and the other qualities and not being a stereotypical man. What are your thoughts around masculine and feminine and what it means to be a man and a husband in a partnership? Yeah, I kind of look at it in two different ways. That masculinity for me has been, you know, as much as like doing stuff that, that I like to do, that I grew up doing, that's physical, that's got to do with nature, like hunting and fishing, you know, just being out by myself um, for long periods of time. And I just love that connection with being in my masculinity in that way. And what I also learned was that for me, masculinity was coming from my emotional depths and then being able to articulate that. Let's say I have encouraged her to be more assertive. And then when she responds in, in a way that is, you know, uh, assertive and uh, claiming, you know, there's mixed feelings that I can have about that. It's like, well, okay, I'm giving something up in that. And okay, then what's my identity? What's my contribution to this? And I think there have been times when I have felt from her that when I'm expressing more from my feminine side, that it's somehow, you know, the figurative sort of pat on, nice, you're doing really well for, you know, for a man. It's like, no, if I'm if I'm going there, my, my version of that is just as valid as anybody else's. It's not a secondary or less than, you know. I think that the expression of emotion, the deeper, you know, fears, sadness, anxiety, those kind of things that you'd put on the side of feminine, only women cry, you know, those kinds of things like that. For men to express those, that's freaking courage. And I think that on the flip side of that, stoicism, not all the time, but a good percentage of the time is fearful. That's fear. The ability to stand in it and go, I'm, I'm scared. I don't have an answer for this. Shit, I really feel awkward. I'm anxious. I, you know, that to me is strength. The other part about covering that up and I'll act like I know what I'm doing, that's just being stoic and, and, and wimp. So by that definition, women are incredibly strong. Yes, and for a man to do, to take that risk, to step into our feminine feelings and express those, that takes huge courage. I wish 
that there was more dialogue around being an intimate partnership. In my experience, people don't talk about it. There's either the lovey-dovey perfect couple or the couple that is always frustrated with one another and they look like they're gonna kill each other. And then there's this vast middle ground that looks like people are resigned, the land of resignation. <laughs> like, this is as good as it gets. Here's what I think, is that the lack of dialogue out there negatively impacts my relationship with Jenny. And so that's my wish going forward, that there was more rich, robust dialogue about the full complexity of intimate partnership. It's not necessarily resignation, but it is getting the, the, the notion of perfection out of the way. Get that out of the way, because I believe that's the most poisonous element to relationships is uh, carrying into it the idea that something's going to be perfect and then being disappointed and not having the resources to do anything about that, except for I'm disappointed, therefore it didn't work. Therefore, I guess uh, I either shut down or I drink or I get divorced. When, when I think about my relationship, I'm so grateful for her witnessing my essence, my beauty, my strength, as well as giving me opportunities to see where I, I come up short. You know, relationship can be the most profound learning ground uh, that, you know, that we have an opportunity to experience. I've really thought about how I show up in my relationship with my wife. But I really also need to now look at how I show up, how I want to choose to show up in relationship with my daughter, in relationship with my wife, so that my daughter can see what it's like to live with a couple and for us to model the values that I want her to look for in a partner. So here's the next question. What's hardest to talk about in your relationship? A couple of the areas that are very challenging to talk about beyond menstruation, postmenopausal, is working with that and talking about that and talking about the tremendous changes for both of us aging in our bodies, but particularly for her, there's been just a tremendous changes in her body and her moods are affected by that and it's very hard to talk about that at times. The other part that's hard to talk about is the finances and what it looks like to try to retire and what it looks like to try to, you know, find some place where we can, I can even start slowing down a little bit. That's tough to talk about. I think the thing that comes up for me the most about this point forward is our aging and the impact that has on each of our sexuality and our desires and abilities and that, that kind of thing and just being more clear on what we want and how that changes um, as we age and what we're capable of and all that kind of stuff. One thing I do want to point out as far as the expression of strength, masculinity, um, we're choosing to be here to talk about these things while the Rose Bowl is on. And I just want to point that out, that we've made the choice to be here doing this instead of at home drinking beer, watching football. I think that says a little something. <laughs> I didn't know it was on. I had known. <laughs> I did just, when you said that, I was like, oh, shit, USC's playing. Damn it. I've been thinking about the whole time. Can we end early? <laughs>
men have at times been compared to animals. And so we figured let's try and understand the animal world a little more. And maybe that'll help us understand humans and how they relate to one another in relationships. Mark Beckoff is Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's also co-founder with Jane Goodall of Ethologist for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He's written more than 30 books, 1,000 essays, and he's won several awards for his research on animal behavior. In one of your books on called Animal Morality, you talk about the three clusters, cooperation, empathy, and justice. It sounds like we take the aggression of animals and make that the whole story. Part of what I hear in your work is that there's so much more. In fact, a greater percentage of it is collaboration and cooperation than it is aggression. Can you expand on that a little bit? That's exactly right. You know, there's no doubt that non-human animals will fight with one another. They'll occasionally kill one another. And I'm not talking about predatory behavior. That's completely different. But I'm talking about, say, within species types of competition or fighting. But for all the animals who have been studied, more than 90% of their behavior is what we call prosocial or positive you know, when you turn on the TV or you look at a newspaper or magazine and there's been some kind of horrific, violent event in humans and they say they're just behaving like animals, it's wrong. And it's a really egregious misrepresentation. So I always say, look, you know, the norm is helping cooperation, empathy, compassion, but there are going to be situations where non-human animals do fight and they occasionally harm or kill one another, but it's incredibly rare. But really, if you really want to report on animals, you can report about all their positive emotions and positive interactions because that's really what is characteristic of them. Why are we not seeing the true essence and the sentient being that animals are? Part of it is just the media. They misrepresent animals. mainly because they're ignorant of what we know from true studies of animal behavior. But like I said, I think part of it is looking for roots of our violent and evil behavior and blaming it, you know, if you will, on other animals. And that's why I've written articles that basically say, don't blame them for our behavior. What animals represent a way of being together beyond the mating that we might learn from as humans about how to be in relationship and in partnership with one another? There's actually a lot of them. I mean, sperm whales are a great example. (laughs) They have long-lived bonds. They're very Uh social. Killer whales live in pods, dolphins, lots of birds, and I'm sure invertebrates, I don't know them well enough. Pretty much across the board, you can find representatives of all animals or all taxa of animals who develop long-term social relationships that go outside of mating. What's been your experience as you've tried to change the thinking in the scientific community? Oh, I think it's changing radically. There's more and more um, research papers and popular essays and books being written, if you will, about the nice side of things the cooperative side of things. I mean, Darwin 
you know, talks about survival of the fittest and people misinterpret that all the time. But he also wrote a lot about cooperation among really diverse groups of non-human animals. I'd like to believe that I play a role. I'd like to believe that people like Franz de Waal, who studies great apes, Jane Goodall, and others, are playing a role in that change, saying that's just sort of ignoring what we know to just say animals are aggressive or dominant or, you know, violent beings. When there is some aggression, that it's for some greater good to hold people accountable to the rules of the community. That's pretty, pretty incredible that that kind of communication and rule setting and shared values in a community exist and function that well. What I'm experiencing since I do this for a living is people want to know who other animals are, not what they are. You know, some of my colleagues might say, oh, you know, well, wolves are, you know, wolves are friendly, sharks are friendly, get over it. Well, they are, but once again, on occasion, they harm one another, but so too do humans. And, you know, the research that's being done on humans also shows that we're inherently beneficent, we're inherently kind, and you can't judge all members of a species by the behavior of a few. You know, across the board, there's been studies that have shown that we are very generous cross-culturally. Once again, I think it's the balance of putting out the facts, but not letting people go overboard on the negative side, because that's a misrepresentation. You know, when we do make mistakes in our partnership and, and our humanity at times does show itself, what are we holding on to? The number of good times we showed up in, in our partnership or the mistakes we make where we occasionally say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing? I, there's a little carryover there. Oh, yeah. No, there's definitely a carryover. Most of the people I know have done or said things in relationships, not only, you know, not only partnerships in terms of, you know, uh, male, female, male, male, female, female, partnerships, but just friendships. No one I know hasn't done or said something they regret. You hope that you can then get, you know, get past that by admitting you did something that you wish you didn't do, accepting the fact that we all blow up sometimes just like non-human animals do, and we apologize and we hope that we're forgiven. As far as I know, and I'm not a human, I'm, I'm a human, but I'm not a psychologist, Long-term relationships based on dominance and fear and aggression don't work. We, we know that, right? I mean, yeah. you know, I don't think I'm saying anything that's going to win me the Nobel Prize on that. <laughs> but we have to accept the fact that on occasion we're going to do or say something that we come to regret. Forgiveness is a huge part of social relationships, and you see forgiveness in non-human animals. Is there an example of forgiveness in the animal community? For example, in a dog, an animal might bite too hard during play and they will immediately change their behavior. Say you and I are playing and I push you too hard and you fall down or I jump on you like I'm trying to dominate, eat you or mate with you and you respond in a way where I just go, I'm sorry, I pull away and I do a play signal that says, you know, I'm sorry, Andrew, you know, I didn't mean that. Basically, let's keep playing, 
but that's going to depend on your forgiving me for my transgression. And that kind of play signal is read by the other dog, and then that dog in turn responds with, okay, I, I forgive you, let's keep playing. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And so, and you see it in humans, you know, where, you know, you say something, you do something, you're, you realize that you've not elicited the response you want, and you go, oh, I'm sorry I said that, I'm sorry I did that. Let's move on. The moving on means that, you know, the person who received that behavior, that signal or whatever it is, has to forgive you. Yeah. And I I know a lot of people go, oh, God, that's just being too human. That's doing this. You know, you're being anthropomorphic. No, we're not. I mean, let's just let's just get over the anthropomorphic stuff. If you believe in evolutionary continuity, you believe in Charles Darwin. When I use, quote, human terms to describe non-human animals, I'm not inserting something human into what they do. Non-human animals, the data are clear, feel joy, they feel grief, they feel jealousy, they feel guilt, they feel embarrassment. Question, examples of romantic behavior or courting in animals? Oh, there's so many. And what they usually consist of would be very stereotyped, very recognizable movements could be sounds and it could be odors that basically tell that, you know, in a sense, um, I, I'm courting you. I would like to mate with you. I'd like to make more, make babies with you. And I'm not trying to fight you or eat you or, you know, dominate you. There's very predictable patterns. You know, psychologists study courtship in humans where, you know, people start forming relationships and oftentimes they're based on very subtle movements and odor. odor? We tend to downplay the role of olfaction or uh. odor in our social relationships, but it appears to be very important. And that's why people talk about the chemistry. Oh, I just felt this chemistry between me and this other person. The chemistry comes down to what we call pheromones, chemical signals that exchange a lot of information. But, but the fact of the matter is, once again, focusing on mammals, we know they have the same parts of the nervous system in the limbic system that are important in experiencing emotions. We know they have the same neurochemicals. So slowly but surely that gap is narrowing. The real burden has to be on the people who say that other animals don't love, don't grieve. The fact of the matter is there's a lot of non-human animals who work a lot harder than humans to maintain these long-term relationships. Over the course of decades of your work, how has this changed you in terms of, you know, the, it influencing who you are and what you believe and what you've come to know about yourself and the world and around you? Oh, now that's a small question. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's changed me in the way of just becoming increasingly determined to protect um Non-human animals, I have a book coming out called The Animal's Agenda, Freedom, Compassion, and Coexistence in the Age of Humans. I wrote it with Jessica Pierce. And the main message there is that, you know, we're living in the Anthropocene, people call it the age of humanity, but I call it the rage of inhumanity because there's nothing humane about what's going on in this current epoch that we call the Anthropocene. But in our new book, The Animal's Agenda, we're calling for the science of animal well-being, where 
the lives of each and every individual matter because I really want to get the real picture out there of who animals really are. Follow your heart and follow your passions and you more than likely will be doing good things for the world. To learn more about Mark Beckoff, visit markbeckoff.com and see links of his writings on our site, elephanttalk.org. His new book, The Animal's Agenda, Freedom, Compassion, and Coexistence in the Human Age, written with Jessica Pierce, will be published in April 2017. Thanks to Andy, Andrew, Burke, and Chris, otherwise known as uh, Men's Group. Thank you guys for partaking in this much-needed dialogue about relationships and for sharing your personal perspectives. We'd love to hear perspectives from other groups or other people that get together and hang out. So if your group is interested in sharing, send us a note at hello at elephanttalk.org or message us on Facebook or Twitter. Our producers are Lisa Gray and Kim Paletti. Our theme music is by Rob Berger. Additional music by Ruben Van Rompuy, Troy Bland, and Audio Jungle. Audio production assistance provided by Leslie Gaston Bird and Josh Kern. If you'd like to share your story, send us comments, talk to us, or even if you'd like to become a sponsor, visit us at elephanttalk.org. We want to hear your story. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast. And also, review the show. Your feedback is incredibly important, and it's greatly appreciated, and it helps us get the word out there about Elephant Talk, the show. And thank you for listening. I'm your host, Andy Horning. This is real love. This is Elephant Talk. Elephant Talk.